Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hi, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and I am feeling so honored to be introducing you to the guests on this episode. That's right, I said guests, plural. Sam and Debbie are sisters, and we grew up in the same church together. We were friends as kids, and I even have some fun pictures of me and Sam in my photo collection that I'll share on Instagram. We drifted apart a bit in high school, but I didn't really know why, and we lost touch entirely after that. At some point, though, we became Facebook friends. I'm really dating us as millennials there. (laughs) And I had seen them post about healing and leaving the faith a good bit. So when I decided to do this podcast, I reached out to see if they might want to talk about our shared experience. And they said yes so enthusiastically. And just let me tell you, it has been so good to reconnect with these amazing women. They are heartfelt, strong, and such caring mothers. And I'm so glad that they decided to share their story with me and now with you. During this reconnecting phase, I did learn why we lost touch in high school, and it wasn't at all what I expected. I had no idea what they had been living with, or why Debbie started being treated so differently by fellow church members, or why Sam seemed so angry. And I regret my own judgments of them from that time so much. I don't want to tell their story for them, but before we get into the episode, I do want to warn you that a big portion of the episode is about child abuse. It may not be appropriate for younger listeners, and it's tough stuff, but there are still some great moments of joy and laughter and even immense gratitude. Okay, now that you know what to expect, let's get into it. Hi, 
Hi, Sam and Debbie. It is so great to have you on the podcast today. It's been amazing to reconnect with you since we hadn't seen each other since like our teenage years, maybe like 19, maybe at the oldest we've seen each other since last time. It's been really neat to reconnect with you. And thank you both so much for being here to share your story. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Thank you for having us. Glad to have you. So the listeners know that we went to the same church, right? So we went to Yates together from what? We were probably four or five or so mm-hmm. up until... I think mom started to us there when I was four or five. So Sam would have been like three or four. Basically yeah. grew up there. Yeah. And went to Calvary before that. So we've never not been in church right. until now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all the way through high school. Yeah, we were there together. So we have had a lot of similar experiences. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. So I'm excited, though, because that is an opportunity for us to kind of share from the same perspective, but from individual experiences. And I'm curious if you would mind to each share a little bit about what your personal experience was like growing up in Yates. And, you know, what your memories are of some of the things, because it's, it's a lot of things, but maybe a few of them. So all I can remember from like my earliest time of forming memories is being in church my entire life. And our mothers have that in common where they previously attended Calvary, a church we're all familiar with and transitioning into Yates, which in your episode, you were talking about how they had very similar, like, just teachings and things like that. And Mm -hmm. just growing up in a very strict environment where everything you do is kind of controlled in a way. And then everything being very favored towards one gender versus the other. Which being, Oh, I wonder (laughs) (laughs) to being silenced as children, all kinds of things like that. And just, trying to adjust growing up that way and then being thrown into the real world has been like just quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah. It really has. Expand a little bit more, if you will, on the silencing children piece, because I feel like this (laughs) plays into your story so well. Yeah. I feel like being a child, especially in that particular church that we grew up in was very difficult. It was like that thing that people say, like, children, it's better for children to be seen and not heard. I felt that growing up like a lot, even walking up and trying to like say something while other adults were having a conversation and being told to stop. And I have to ask permission to speak. Even in that, like everything was very much like, hush, you're, you're basically have to earn your right to become a person and get the same respects that everybody else does for some reason. And I don't understand, I still don't understand to this day how they backed that up with religion or with scripture, but they did. Yeah. You have a child. So you're like looking at that experience. Exactly. And with her and her even being, you know, developmentally delayed, I look at her as just this little adult. Like she's looking at me with all these questions and these dreams and, you know, I, I just feel so it's just very interesting, like having it all sink in, like having a kid stare back at you. And you're like, man, I remember being like that. And adults really didn't give you that time to say your piece, like Mm -hmm. how you felt about something. If you were scared, if you had questions, if you felt insecure, like all those things were not important compared to your walk with God. So like, just, just not, you know, 
yeah. even go there. <laughs> yeah. Or that yeah. you were like sitting up straight in church and looking a certain way. Yeah. Everything, everything was just, it had to notes. be perfect almost or strive for yeah. perfection, which is such an unrealistic thing to put on a child. Yeah. 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 I remember hearing um, a story of a mom telling her kid that something wasn't clean enough unless they would be proud for Jesus to come in and see it. It's <laughs> a really high bar to set there. Oh yeah. Really high bar. Yeah. But it's also like, like very antithetical to Jesus's nature. Yeah. Well, you know, he's always watching. So <laughs> you gotta, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of pressure too, is to always be perfect. Even if there weren't mm. the adults looking in or like someone wasn't looking, it's like that, that feeling that someone is always watching and everything has to be yeah. presentable all the time and you have to be perfect and achieve for this. It's like, it really does, I think, contribute to really low self-esteem, especially I feel like in girls growing mm. up in that environment. Yeah, I feel like we all relate to that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I also feel like it made for the stuff that I heard, you know, people talk about being punished for by their parents was often so small. Oh, yeah. And so insignificant or such a normal part of childhood is really wild to me. Yes, I have a lot of memories of either myself or kids growing up with in the church and the things we would get in trouble for. And for the most part, I feel like we were all very good kids because when I grew up and saw what the typical kid was like, I was like, oh, wow, we, nobody really does anything like that. Yet we're. Mm -hmm. Some people were getting their whole rooms taken away. Like they got a mattress on the floor and that's it. And mm -hmm. that's your punishment for, it was always something silly. It was never anything that was what I had to believe, would believe was be like deserving of something that severe. Yeah. Like so. an actual terrible thing. <laughs> right. Too. Like, um, like you laughed when an adult was talking. Even on one time I got in trouble for that, for laughing when an adult was talking. And I wasn't even laughing at the adult. I was just a kid and I was laughing. So there's always that, you know, you're, to be having to pay attention to like your own mannerisms that much as like a six-year-old, you're like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's heavy, you know, like to think about yeah. everything you're doing and saying and it is impossible. So of course I stayed in trouble a lot. I feel like as a kid <laughs> for nothing to the, for the most part, <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, it was just silly little stuff. You know, I was a pretty yeah. good kid though. You just don't have the emotional awareness and capability when you're that young to recognize what everybody around you is doing, how they're feeling and what they expect from you all the time. That's a lot when you're a kid. Yeah. Well, it makes you like paranoid, I feel like. Yeah. Right. So you, you're paranoid as a little kid because you're like, oh, mom's watching. Oh, oh, dad's watching. Oh, mm -hmm. Jesus is watching. Oh, I messed up. I everybody's watching. <laughs> yeah. So right? it like, increases like paranoia, which increases what? Anxiety, which does what? Messes with your head as a kid. So you can't be this <laughs> carefree yeah. kid because you're like – have all of this responsibility and anxiety placed on you because of your like paranoia that is pushed on you from all these other people. Right. Yeah. You That's know? a really like, good way to put it. So, and, and mental health in church is a joke. So it just does nothing for nobody's mental health. Right. So, and then if you do happen to be prone to anxiety or ADD or depression or anything like that, schizophrenia, multiple personalities or like whatever thing you have going on and you add all that on top of it, no, no good. Like that's just no good. So yeah. yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And I think too, just the idea that like the expectations felt like they changed a lot. Mm -hmm. 
like the the bar was always moving. Right? Yeah. The role was changing or the idea about something was, this was okay at one time and then not now. And then it shifts and changes or mm-hmm. it's not okay for you and your family, you know, from the pulpit, but in their, in the teacher's own life, that that's exactly what they were doing. You know, like right. mm-hmm. I think about like TVs in rooms being a big deal. Like you can't oh, be yeah. a kid and have a television in your room, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then learning that like there were, there was leadership that had children with TVs in their room. <laughs> I know. Do you know how my mind was blown when I went to the youth pastor's house, like when I was older and I saw that the, the son who I was close to with at the time, he had a TV in his room. I was like, Oh my God, you have a TV in your room. Your dad's the youth what? pastor. <laughs> I thought he, he was, told so- us. <laughs> <laughs> what? Man. He made my parents think I couldn't have that. <laughs> Betrayed. Uh. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. How about you, Debbie? I'm really curious to hear your perspective now. I just remember having people tell me all the time that, you know, God gives us free will and we're choosing to believe in God and we're choosing to be disciplined in these particular acts of service to him and we're choosing that. But I remember never feeling like I had free will. I never really remember feeling free. I remember feeling like I was never good enough and I had no bodily autonomy. It didn't matter if I didn't want to do something or I didn't want to or I did want to do something, I couldn't. So if someone was always controlling me, which I think hindsight looking back, it sets you up to be in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. as an adult, yeah. whether it yeah. be in, an, in a workplace or with a domestic yep. partner or just with a friend or a group mm-hmm. of friends, like whatever, because you have no bodily autonomy, right? Like your whole life, you you don't have control over your own thoughts are irrelevant. Your feelings don't matter. And someone can say and do whatever they want to to you. And you know what? You better shut up. Like that's how I remember church. Yeah. So to me as a woman growing up in that oppression of women, it just cycled all these women to just get ready for these husbands who are overly have like already a big ego because we're, they, we're, you know, they're just getting like these people are getting bread to serve others. Like the women are just bread yeah. to serve the men. So the men are, have this inflated ego of they're, they're ready to be served by these women who were made for them, right? They chose them. And then, so then you're just setting up for abuse because now you have no bodily autonomy again from your husband. If you don't want to do anything like intimate, then too bad. You better just lay down and be quiet. If you have a feeling, then you better keep it to yourself because it's disrespectful to your husband. You know, so I just feel like it was like a breeding ground for setting people up to have unhealthy and toxic relationships moving forward, whether in like a business work setting or just any kind of setting, any kind of relation, interpersonal relationships, I feel like we're not given any good guidelines at all. (laughs) Right. That's how I remember feeling just like I was never good enough. It didn't matter. I never remembered all the verses. I never wore like the longest, most modest clothes or if I did or whatever, you know, like there's always that paranoia and the anxiety that I was never good enough, like low self-esteem. And then it didn't really matter if I lose the self-esteem because my self-esteem didn't really matter, right? Because that's pride and vanity and that's wrong. So it's like you you can't. And then like in that setting, you don't feel free like at all. ever. No. What freedom? Yeah. I'm also remembering the verse that says something around like um, the heart is deceitfully wicked and, you know, who can trust it. I feel like that would come up a lot when you talk about your feelings or like how you felt a certain way or thought a certain way. And I was like, well, you can't trust yourself. And so that fundamental part of development just right out the window, just. Which has to play into like the children. Like I wish there's like, they're probably, I'm sure there is by now, but like 
a psychologist going in like and studying all these children and like mm-hmm. how like really important key factors of brain development and personality mm-hmm. development is like altered because of yes. all of this stuff. And so yes. now here, what are we doing as adults? Like, well, you know, yeah. you're just a that whole hot ha- mess. <laughs> right. I don't know if it's all, but like you can feel the effects from, from church and growing up in that really strict environment that we did. You can feel that in your adulthood. And even when I think I have all my things, I'm like, okay, I know what they are. Another one comes up and I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like what? You gave us so triggering because like you read it and you're just like, oh, I got it together now. I'm, you know, 36 (laughs) years old. I've been healing for a long time. And then you read it and you're like, I'm so triggered. I don't know. I got to go to Starbucks because I just can't stop crying. (laughs) (laughs) I need to comfort myself. (laughs) For the listener's sake, the book Debbie is talking about is called How We Heal by Alexandra L. I sent it to all of the people who were a guest on the podcast as a a thank you gift. And it really will get you right in the feelings and it'll have you warping through stuff you thought you had. It's really good. But to your point, Debbie, you were talking about people studying brain development through childhood with the church. That has happened. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been a a lot of research around that. And later on this season, I actually have a therapist on an episode who talks about that. So hopefully you'll enjoy. It's very exciting. She's brilliant. And she um, really does a a great job of laying it out in a very accessible and Mm -hmm. helpful way. So I think- Yeah, it's true. It is true. It doesn't affect your development. Anything that happens to you in childhood is going to affect your development, right? Sure. But strict religious environments have a special way of interrupting the process because it doesn't work with their narrative very well. I remember like as a kid growing up, we, you know, you couldn't, they'd hand out the pamphlets in church about like the Druids and all this kind of stuff and how it was like satanic and there were like child sacrifices back in the day. It was like a lot of fear mongering. It was like a whole big paper, right? Are you talking about for Halloween when they would hand out the printout for that? Yeah. 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 And I would read it because I'm obsessed with like cults and spooky stuff. Like I just love it. Like give me all the spooky stories. I want to read all of them. Right. Um, so I would read it just over and over because I'd like, I can't believe people do this. It's amazing. You know, but I was like, I had to do it in secret. So I'd hide it and like read about these other religions like (laughs) (laughs) in secret. But that wasn't but then being in college and taking the religions classes of those religions that we were fear mongered about, that's not even what they were doing. It wasn't what they were doing. And so it was funny. But I remember the only way that Sam and I were allowed to participate in Halloween is if we we could never dress up. Absolutely not. But you could hand out candy as long as there was a gospel track in there. You could hand out candy to kids that knocked on your door. So you could see other kids dress up. And that was the funnest thing. Like we loved that just so we could see all these other kids. And we wanted to be a part of it so bad, but we were never allowed to. And I'll be damned if there has been a Halloween yet to date that my kids have not dressed up and we have not went and got candy. Because I am not... (laughs) Like, absolutely not. Like, yes, let's get all the candy, go into a sugar coma. I don't care. You want to be Spider-Man? Like, we'll, we'll do all of it. Because <laughs> it's so fun. You can be a druid if you want to. You can be a druid. Yeah, you can. I don't even care. It's it's. Yeah. It was just, I just remember it being like this horrible thing, yeah. you know. And then you remember us going to the fairgrounds around Halloween and we got to face paint, but mm-hmm. every color was a primary color and that primary color related to a Bible verse. So we had to witness to them the entire time and we could only paint certain things in certain colors. 
Yes. But I loved I it because I like to paint and we got to go to see the fair, which we never got to go do fun things really. Like that. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. I remember speaking of Halloween, how the church would do like a dress up as a Bible character event. Oh, I place of it. Yes. Bible alive. You got One to pick One of the your- <laughs> funniest stories. Because I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was, I wanted to go as Jezebel one year because she <laughs> wore cool jewelry and I was going to yep. get to wear makeup and mm-hmm. fun clothes and I wasn't going to be boring. And I was just like, I'm going as Jezebel. And I was so proud of it. But I didn't realize like, at the time what that meant to the church, right? Like I was just like, I'm Jezebel. <laughs> I remember my characters too. I remember one year I was Ruth mm-hmm. and then another mm-hmm. year I was, Esther, which is kind mm-hmm. of fucked up with the story of Esther. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. like I don't know who. I don't remember picking these these characters either. I, I was Esther I too one time, and then I was Deborah because my name is from the Bible and it's a, the judge, right? Sense. So I was Deborah, and I had like the red cord and everything while that. I did all that. Yeah, Going off that. of the Halloween stuff that you're talking about, though, um, Halloween in particular has because we were never allowed to celebrate it, and it was under such like it was just such a big difference between us and them when it came to like that holiday in particular and it was just so forbidden and so dark and so evil and so this and that and now I embrace it fully like it is my favorite holiday like when I dress my kid up I dress her up like cosplay dress her up like (laughs) I order little pieces of everything piece it all together she looks amazing I'm not getting like a little $20 costume in a bag like I go all out and it's because she enjoys it. And I feel like Tim, for, for me, it helps her like just stay in that mode a little bit longer because she's a kid. And it, yeah. like to dress up and make believe and to fantasize and to feel like that in that moment, mm-hmm. it's gone. Once you grow up, that's it. You know, yeah. she has a very short window to do that. And if anything, growing up like that has just taught me to value and cherish like just that childhood. Yeah, that time you have is so short. Yeah. And I just want to give my kid as much of that as I can before she grows up. And that's not even anything she's interested in anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's going to take that sense of self with her. <laughs> that's, good. that's That's the point, right? That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the way kids are treated and how they're very much not, not always treated like real people, right? They're kind no. of almost like when I think about some of the books, like to train up a child and things like that, they're very much teaching people in fundamentalism to raise their kids the way they would a horse or a dog, or, you know what I mean? It's all about training. An accessory almost. An accessory and, and, you know, like something to be molded into this one shape and -hmm. you have to, you have to take all those things and mesh them into this one shape. And, and that's one side of it. But I think the, a big part of what I I've heard in your story is that you just did not have rights as people, even to your own safety. Yeah, no. And I really, really wish I could say that you have a unique experience in a church. But unfortunately, we're learning more and more every day that it's pretty common in churches, like Mm -hmm. a story similar to yours. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what it was like in your home and like what, what happened to you. Well, my father was a cop and he was in the little local town there. Well, just nothing golf town. And uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom because that's what she wanted to do. And she homeschooled us. So we weren't really exposed to any outside influences other than the church. 
right? Mm-hmm. We went to VBS or Bible camp or something like that, but we were never supposed to like quote unquote secular ideas of any kind, you know, because my family was bred into the Christian. So it was just Christians were everywhere around me. I was like in this little Christian bubble of a universe and I didn't know, you know, that anything else existed really just like, you know, you and your story when you're like, oh, wow, that's a thing. I didn't even know, you know, it because our thing yeah. was all like, you know, the Lion King had Elton John and he is a homosexual and <laughs> we have to, you know, so it was all very bubbled. So you couldn't like, we couldn't go to Disney. There's all kinds of things. But um, my dad was extremely like a lot of the other men in that church and was just very abusive, like anger yeah. abusive, like very explosive outbursts. I think that my mom had a lot of explosive outbursts too, but I think that she had a lot on her as well. And I think that her mental health was not the greatest, right? I think she had dealt with a lot of depression and things like that. And she was also surrounded in this bubble and it was, you know, kids are to do what their parents tell them, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they backed that up with scripture and there was many scriptures that said, if you went against your parents, you deserve to die. You deserve yeah. to be stoned. Like there are scriptures that say that. And that was that was their whole thing. So you were so terrified. And it even said like the God would like turn your his back on you if you were like a rebellious son or daughter and you didn't heed the voice of your mother and the wisdom of your father. Like there's all these verses that are okay. So they preach that, you know, and then that's what mm-hmm. you believe. So me and Sam were very much like, shut up unless we talk to you. Like, please be quiet. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, don't make any noise. If dad's asleep, don't do it. And he was a monster. Like he was an absolute monster. And yeah. if he was not beating Sam, then he was assaulting me sexually. And he did that from the time as early I can remember as like four or five until yeah. about 12, maybe 11, 12, something like that. So my whole childhood was just that, like in that cloud of danger and like yeah. I said earlier, there was no bodily autonomy. So if I was, I remember I had being sick with the flu on the couch and he came because I went to sleep on the couch because I was throwing up, I was sick with the flu. And I remember thinking, I was looking at him and I remember him getting undressed beside me on the couch because he was fixing to assault me again. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, I can't even be sick. I can't even be sick mm-hmm. in my house. Like I remember that. I, and that's when Sam, that's when we were in the greenhouse. So we were what, seven? Yeah, my, I have some story mom was always pretty transparent with us honestly about things whenever they came to light you know so I have stories that I remember you were I thought three or four the first time I heard about something weird happening with you with dad sexually and then with me well mom always told me pretty pretty straight up that as soon as dad found out that I, she was pregnant with me, I was unplanned and I was a girl that he was over it and he was over it yeah. from then until forever. Yeah. So when I was born, I remember she told me a story about how she left to go do something and he was supposed to be watching me. And like part of my leg had, I was like probably six months or something had gotten stuck through like the little play pack and play, you know? And my leg was like, purple when she came home because like my leg was just stuck through there and he was not what looking at me or paying attention to me at all yeah like he didn't feed her no. change or nothing he didn't, i was like messed myself everything like that and she came home and saw me like that and was like freaked out on him and everything and and i that's my earliest memory that was told to me of what was distinct to me of him not caring about me as his child and mm. ever since then like it was very if he spoke to me which he rarely did it was in a hateful tone telling me i was stupid telling me to shut mm. up Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And then it was weird because since he preyed on my sister in a sexual way, to me, not knowing it was sexual at the time, because I was very young, 
but until I, you know, that clicked, it was just like, oh, well, he's taking her on these ice cream dates and he's doing this and he's doing that. Well, what's wrong with me? And it left me with this huge sense of like, just really like not ever feeling like I could measure up to anything and not knowing where that came from. Cause we were both his daughters. We were like, what, what was different? Like, I didn't know. I didn't understand. And now I'm like, oh, okay. He was being a predator. I get that. And yeah, yeah. I was always really like, I always said a lot. So if he was to do something, chances are I probably would have ran my mouth about it. So I was kind of like a hazard anyways. <laughs> I love that about you. know, <laughs> he's like, you're an issue. Like, you know, and I think that that was um, a good way, a reason for him to try to keep me silent. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I remember Debbie, when we moved into that big house on Poplar Street in Aberdeen, I remember there was one time where she was like in the room with dad and like I had walked in there to be like, Hey, can I watch cartoons? And dad would always use that against me to be like, Oh yeah, go watch cartoons. And I'm distracted. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember Debbie looked at me and you were probably like seven or eight, maybe. And you're like, please don't leave. If you do, he's going to do weird stuff to me. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And then I just went to go watch cartoons and I'll never forget that. And we were very young and those are just Mm -hmm. like little things until it became more, Cause he got, I guess, ballsier, you know, <laughs> as time went on. Yeah. Well, that's how abuse goes. And to go from that to, oh, it's time to go to Sunday school, everybody. And my dad's putting his suit on and grabbing his Bible. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to church and sitting together on this pew. And he's shaking the pastor's hand and we're singing and we're doing this stuff. And it was just so fake. Yeah. Everyone loved him. Yeah. Everyone did love you. As dad. a cop, they loved him. They thought he was amazing. Yeah. And he... I thought he was a deacon. I told I was told later by mom that he definitely wasn't a deacon, but he was in the circle of them. Like he ran with yeah. them. He was the cops. So he's like the force of law of the church. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was that was just it was just hard because I remember feeling like I just like unseen and the most seen. Like so I felt completely exposed all the time um by him. And then I also felt like completely invisible to everybody else. Does that make sense? Like, so like when I was at home, I was like, when I would be at home, I was like, he's the only thing I, that he can see is me. Like I'm all there and he would not leave me alone. Like I couldn't shower hardly by myself. I remember changing in my room. He would just walk in my room all the time at night. I still, to this day, as a grown 36 year old woman, I can't sleep with my door closed. Because when, when the door closes, the bad things happen, right? Like it's in my brain. Mm-hmm. And so I always, like I get panicky and sweaty, like automatically still now to this day. And it's been how many decades later, but when the doors close, I don't like the door being closed, but like now, you know, Eric and I, he's like, you know, it's like a safety thing. Like it's okay. And we have cameras and everything. He's like, it's going to be like, relaxed. It's going to be okay. And so like, I'm working through it, but like when he's not here, oh, all the damn doors are open. Every single door is open in this house. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do it. And that's like my own thing that like just creeps up, like weird stuff that just creeps up. And then I'm very particular. Like if I'm sick, don't, no. If I'm sick and it don't, no. Yeah. Like I need my alone time because I never had that. I was never allowed to be sick as a kid or not have a good day or just not want to be touched. I never had bodily autonomy. And that was so hard. 
and I didn't understand it. And then you're reading all these verses from the Bible, like Proverbs 31, or where it talks about like women are impure, like filthy rags and all this stuff that it says in the Bible. And you're like, okay, well, I have to be pure, but then I don't like what he's doing and he's doing it, but he's also my dad. So I have to obey him. And then I just did something to piss my mom off. So now I'm going to get a spanking and then I'm not wearing a modest shirt. And then everyone's going to think that I'm loose and I'm not. And that, you know what I mean? So it's like all this inner turmoil. So when you grow up, you're just so conflicted between the religion, your home life, your own identity. Like don't even throw in puberty yet. We haven't even gotten close to puberty yet. Cause we're, right. we're talking six, seven, eight, nine little baby girl. Like little and that, girl. And that purity culture was so huge when we were all growing mm-hmm. up in church too. Like, remember when everybody mm-hmm. was getting their purity rings in church oh, yes. and your mommy and daddy would buy you a little diamond ring and you wear it on your mm-hmm. ring finger to that show everyone that you're a virgin. And if you didn't get it, it's like, oh, well, why doesn't she have a purity ring? You know, like there's a lot of weird stuff going on there with that. Mm -hmm. It was a status symbol. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I remember dad got me one and it had 13 little diamonds and it was in a flower because I have since for forever loved flowers. And I was taken to this fancy little restaurant in Pinehurst with mom and dad. And I had a black dress on and it was like a fancy black dress because it was my birthday. And it had my little diamond ring. And he goes, well, let me do the dad thing. Give me your hand. And he gave me your hand. And he put the ring on me. He goes, all right, there's your purity ring. You can't take it off till you get married. Like I remember that stuff. And me in a while, you're constantly in my room, sir. Like right. you're constantly in my room. Like, and I remember like as a little kid fighting him off and him like hurting my arm and wrist really bad because I, but I didn't understand what he was doing. I just know I don't want to touch him there. I don't want him to touch me. He hurts me all the time. It hurts so bad. And I just, that's the only thing I could register. And then like now, of course, growing up and looking back, I'm like, well, I mean, obviously I know what he was doing. Right. And then too, like I couldn't like, and I look at my baby. So my youngest is four. So that's about the same time when some stuff started getting really serious with dad about the abuse. And I couldn't imagine my little four-year-old, like anyone even looking at, he is such a baby. Like he can't do nothing by himself. You know, and like yeah. he's so little, you know, his little hands yeah. and his little feet, like he's so little. And, and I was that too. And I just couldn't imagine like a grown man, an adult man's look at them like, yep, that's sexual toy for me. That's what I want to yeah. play with. Like, I don't understand the, that, that sickness. I, I will never understand that. And I'm very sensitive to it. And it has made me a very sensitive parent to my kids. Like they, yeah. my kids, if they don't want me to touch them, I don't touch them. And like they, I don't wash them. I, the, you wash yourself. This is how you, what it is. This is how we wash this. You wash it. You know, like I'm so particular and sensitive about them and who sees them and who touches them and what's going on. And we name our body parts and we know we do not, no one touches this, you know, and if someone, we don't do secrets. So my kids don't, you don't keep secret from mommy. Like it's, it's really important to me from different things that have happened in my childhood. So it's definitely shaped my parenting. Like Sam's has shaped her parenting you know, for our children. My parallel to that is I feel like, you know, just being a kid and not being able to stick up for yourself, like while someone that much bigger than, and than you is like towering over you and like hurting you physically mm-hmm. is like, once I got out of that environment, I stood up to my, for myself, like to a fault. Mm-hmm. And then I had to unlearn like this extra layer of like aggressiveness and like my willingness mm-hmm. to like fight anyone who wanted to step to me and everything like that, because oh, yeah. Or standing up for someone else. Like if I see someone else mm. get me mistreated, I, you know, it, you know, it's just, I live, I live that daily. Like, like Debbie's talking yeah. about with her kids and trying to protect them yeah. from that. 
And that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely have a really strong, aggressive streak for sure. And people tell mm-hmm. me that all the time. And I try to tame it down and it has gotten better, but my gosh, it takes a lot of work because yeah. absolutely like the first, the first thing is always like, well, what's your problem? You know, like, as you know, because I'm so ready to fight because I never could fight. Right. And so I was yeah. very combative and I actually feel, feel bad for my stepdad because me and Sam were both, we were, we were pistols, man. Yeah, I was great. I don't know what you're talking. I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. And you're like, um, I don't think so. We're not doing that. <laughs> like yeah. it was, it was tough on him for sure. I just love that you're both equipping your children with the tools that you didn't get. Yeah, and making sure that they aren't trapped. Right. Yeah, I don't remember my mom ever teaching me about consent. Yeah, as a yeah. as a little kid, or the church, or anybody. That was never going to happen in the church. Yeah, like like even like other moms or other kids, like mm-hmm. yeah, other adults in the church, just giving us as the kids there like tools and resources yeah. or just safe spaces to come to for questions, yeah. concerns. I mean, there are a lot of churches where the pastor is the abuser. Who do you go to yeah. then? You know, yeah. if you can't go to the man in charge of that church, like who do you go to? So yeah. you don't even have like these safe spaces to go to to even express your concerns or like what's going on. So like mm-hmm. that sanctuary is like real big for me right now. Like just having sanctuary yeah. somewhere. I need to have some kind of safe space. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When I think of you guys story, I really get like this image of you being trapped because you couldn't go to the church. You couldn't go to your own parents. Like your dad was one of the biggest parts of the problem. It was the biggest part of the problem. And your dad was a cop. Yeah. Right? So you can't go to the police. You can't go to the church. You don't have a school to go to to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. You were just so stuck in it. Yeah. And your outlet was whether or not your mom was going to get you out of it. Right? That was yeah. Your, right. That was your option. Yeah. And, and Sam so, told her. Sam told yeah. her. Yeah. I was we going like to ask nine, at what point she Nine or ten. Out. Nine or ten, I think. Um, okay. We were on so it was our, a secret for a while. It was. A long time. Mm-hmm. Long, time. Long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I told Stan because I started to ask my friends, like, hey, does your dad do this on the third? Hey, does your dad do this on the third? And they're like, what? No, that's weird. And they and then they just keep. Well, we keep if, I think I'm the first one that she asked that to. She was like, hey, does dad? And I was like, I did the same thing. I was like, uh, no, that's weird. Because he hated me. Like, of course, he doesn't mm. touch me. He doesn't, you know, like, I'm like, <laughs> uh, what are you even talking about? Like, he does that to you. You're making that up. Because it just sounded fake. But I'm also like five. Right. Like, so how does it, I mean, I'm like, I couldn't even wrap my brain around that. And I think once I, I think I was 10, that sounds about right. Like I was nine yeah. or 10, something nine like that. Or 10. Yeah. And I just out, I just out blurted it. I was like, mom, Debbie da, 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 said da, 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 da. And she was like, what? And it was a huge deal. And at that moment is when, you know, my mom went to the pastor's wife for help because they were very close friends at the time, still are. And then that is whenever, you know, the counseling started through the church for my father which is yeah. a Not huge, interesting, <laughs> interesting yeah. part. Yeah. No counseling for, for the children, just for the abuser. Just for him. Right. Yeah. So your mom told the pastor's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And him. There and was the a pastor. And the pastor. And right. so yeah. your mom took the situation to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which she couldn't go to the police either, I guess. Right. right. And then the church was like, hey, we'll fix this. Right. Yeah. They're like, don't. Or we'll um, work on this. Right. Yeah. Basically, it was he was to come in once a week on a Thursday, I believe. It was like every Thursday yeah. he had to come in. 
And he had counseling sessions one-on-one with the pastor. It was to be kept quiet. Mom actually stayed at their house with us for a couple weeks, probably, Mm -hmm. um, until it was okay. I also remember staying at her other best friend's house down the road. She had five kids. We were real close to them. Um, We stayed at her house, too, for a little bit. And then once it was okay, dad, you know, said he was sorry and everything was fine. He was in counseling for quite a while. Moved back in the house with him, Mm -hmm. yeah. After After a series of counseling with the pastor. Yeah, just him alone. Just him alone, okay. Yeah, not us at all. No professionals. Um, No professionals, no. No professional help, no professional counseling, nothing. I do wonder what the counseling sessions were like. Like, I remember there were a couple times where me and Debbie rode along with him to these counseling sessions, and I find that still to be so odd that that was even a mm-hmm. thing that like we rode along a couple times and we like sit in the hallway of Yates, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And I remember one time like listening, like I was try- trying to peek through the crack or like listen mm-hmm. in. And cause I wanted to know like, why is dad at these counseling sessions? Cause a lot of things still weren't clicking for me. And I was, cause I was so young at the time. And I remember like just hearing a bunch of scripture and it just sounded like he was in there just reading the Bible. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, it's just it's just so funny like the therapy or the counseling that was given to him was just verse after verse after verse and I'm sure he had to repent in some way or pray and ask God's forgiveness in some way to be able to have the pastor's blessing to move back into the home with us and everything like that yeah I can only imagine mom wasn't she was told she had to go back though because it was a sin to get a divorce and they couldn't do that and they said if she wow. wanted to get divorced, the only way she could is because in the Bible it says you can divorce if for cheating. And so technically dad cheated on her with me. And so she could get a divorce, but they didn't recommend that. That's not a biblical thing. They wanted her to stay and to, you know, rebuild the family. And there was a lot of pressure on her as a woman that the responsibility of the relationship and the family was on her to keep it up and not dad and his mental illness that he had because, and I, I had a best little, I mean, we're still friends now, but she was my best girlfriend and um, her dad owned a boys camp, Cameron boys camp. And, or I don't know if he owned it, but he was one of the higher ups that worked in it all the time. Um, They always said it was his. So I assumed he owned it. I have no idea, but she, I told her, that was one of my other friends that I was like, oh, well, dad's in therapy because blah, 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 blah. And so she freaked out because that's all she, her family, they did teach consent and her family did teach those things, right? Because they're yeah. in a boys camp. So you got to, you know, little boys just touch you. Nobody touch you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Purity culture thing. And so then she told her fans. So then her parents went to the church and the pastor and was like, hey, we want to take Debbie. We, this is not okay. This has never been okay. This is illegal, blah, blah, blah. He's a police officer and made a huge stink about it. Well, then the pastor called my mom and she had to run in there. We were dropped off somewhere. I don't really know. It was like an emergency meeting. It seemed like almost. And it was with her parents, the pastor and my mom. And they, they basically, he begged them. He was like, look, he's under my counseling, blah, blah, blah. He's not going to do anything else to her anymore. Um, it's all over, said and done with. And, you know, they left the church over that because they said it was really wrong. And I also remember mom going to dad's psychiatrist because dad had ADD, like really bad. And he was on um, ADD medicine. So I had to go to a psychiatrist in Raleigh. And I remember the psychiatrist's name, but I'm not going to say it. Um, and my mom went up there and had a meeting and took me with her. I don't, I can't remember if Sam was there or not. I don't remember. 
Might probably. And we were in the waiting room and she went back there and talked to him for a few minutes. And she said, she can remember her coming out and saying, well, the doctor made me leave because he said, if I told him one more other thing that dad did to you, Debbie, that he was going to call the police and have to report it legally. He has to report it. So, so she left, left, you know, that he told her, he's like, you have to get out and leave. Cause if you say Mm -hmm. one more thing of how he abused her, I have to report it as a, you know, physician yeah. i have to do this because yeah um like so she he said well not only because of the nature of it but i was so little again i was 10 like when we were doing all this the first time when she left the first time i was 10 years old like so a young. baby a baby baby mm-hmm. um so she didn't report it because she left or whatever dad was in did his counseling joke sessions with the pastor and but like but everybody knew right because she told the pastor's wife and if there's one thing a southern church is good for it is gossip and so you know she told one person they told the other person or they'd be like the most salacious thing to me is oh let me pray with you about it what is on your heart and then you tell them and then they just use that to oh we need to pray for her because she's her husband's doing all the you know so everybody knew so growing up in that church everybody knew that i was like tainted the tainted child i was the one who was touched i was the one who was you know but then come to find out a whole lot of other my friends in church were too so It was just like a sickness that was real deep rooted in there. And I don't know that it is not still that way today because I don't step foot in that church anymore. I have Mm -hmm. no idea, but I can't imagine it being ran by the same pastor and same youth pastor today that it's a whole lot different. Can't imagine that the culture is a whole lot different, maybe a little bit here and there, but not a whole lot different, you know, not a whole lot different. It's interesting you mentioned the way, you know, you were the tainted one because I remember the (laughs) way people shifted in the way they talked about you. I made them very uncomfortable. Yeah. I remember. But you know what the funny thing is? Changed. Everyone called me like a whore when I was growing up in the church. I had that salacious like reputation. But you know, I didn't lose my virginity. I did not willingly have sex with somebody until I was 18. And that wound up being my first husband. Wow. Yeah. So salacious. So salacious. I made out with a wild child. I made out with everybody. I, oh, your little son thinks I'm cute. Let's go. Let's go make out. Like that's fine. <laughs> like but everyone thought I was just like the worst thing ever. But matter, like the truth of the matter is, I didn't lose my virginity willingly until I was an adult, a legal adult. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the funniest thing to me about the whole entire situation because everyone thinks that they know, but no one had a clue. No one had a clue. And I was so busy acting out because I was so angry at everybody. You know, I'm I'm still angry about it. Like, really, like, I'm still mad that they failed so many ways. Like, mm-hmm. me, Sam, so many other families, you know, failed mm-hmm. them. There were so many little girls that they failed. There were so many families that should have been held accountable that failed. But then if the, the teenage girl gets pregnant, then she's judged before the church. But if the boy gets her pregnant, he has nothing, you know, mm-hmm. or the father that is trying to rape his daughter gets nothing gets nothing there's no judgment there in front of a church because men are nothing ever happened to your dad right nothing not a damn thing he got remarried and uh she had a daughter i have no idea what happened like we i don't have zero communication with him i have never had communication with him i don't want to talk to him he will Mm -hmm. never be around my children like it's you know Mm -hmm. i saw him when my grandmother died and me and sam both got physically sick after that like stomach like throwing up like we were both sick for days after that and then she was pregnant her blood pressure was through the roof. I was like, man, yeah. this girl's going to go into labor over this because it was very <laughs> upsetting. 
Yeah. It was very upsetting. Yeah, I can imagine. Whenever you touched on how, like, unfortunately, our story isn't unique to other peoples in the church, you know, that's so true because, like, here, like, all this stuff, it, you just think about all the other people in the church that also were going through stuff like that. We had friends come up, and once they found out that, oh, I heard your sister this, my dad does this to me too, or mm. she had friends telling her, my brother sneaks into my room at night. And, you know, so there, and there were so many situations like that in the church. It's just that they were all swept under the rug. I'm sure they were all handled with the same amount of counseling, you know, (laughs) right. Like let's have some meetings with the youth pastor or the pastor, whomever did it. I don't always know. I just know the pastor handled my father's. I'm, I don't know how it worked out with everybody else, but I, 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 there was no help that came from that. All it did was delay him doing it again which I feel like we kind of skimmed over that part because whenever the counseling was over, you know, we moved back in and then he very quickly, like what I call relapsed, you know, (laughs) like he was right back to his old ways very, very quickly. He got more forward with, with how he, he got more forward with how Mm -hmm. he like touched Debbie and and, mm-hmm. and and where in the house he would try to to do it, mm-hmm. and then he like also pushed against walls and stuff. Like it was very forceful at that point, mm-hmm. and I just knew at some point I was like, "It's going to get so bad. Like eventually, I'm going to be full blown raped." Like I knew that it was coming. Like you know that it, you know as a woman, like this is fixing to be taken from me for real. Yeah. Like not even partially taken, but he just is not going to care soon because it's right, right there, right yeah. there. When there's a 40-something-year-old man who's 6'2", by the way, pinning you against a wall and holding mm. you down, and you're barely a teenager, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a yeah. chance against that, like, yeah. ever in life. So, I don't know. It was, and then, and then he would beat Sam, so he got weight. He had a lot of aggression, internal aggression, and he took it yeah. out on Sam physically and then me sexually. That's what he did. And then he hated my mother, so he was very mean with things that he said to her mm. and how he treated her. And it was just really weird. The whole thing was just really, really weird. But you would never yeah. know that on church on Sunday. Really wouldn't. Never you would really know. wouldn't. And at any point where you guys offer counseling through either the first time or the second time. Mm-mm. I have a slightly different story than Debbie's because she got married very young. Mm-hmm. Like literally as soon as she could, she's like, I'm out of here. And I don't blame her. And a lot of, a lot of us did that, that grew up in these, you know, Mm -hmm. I think of how many girls that we grew up with that got married when they were like 18 or 19 years old. And, you know, I think a lot of it is an escape and like, it's like, well, I mean, and some of them were already acting like grown women. So I might as well, (laughs) might as well. But I mean, I kind of uh, stayed with my mom and stuff a little bit longer once we moved to Georgia and she remarried and everything. I was offered some counseling that my mother actually drove me to. Like she drove a long ways to, um, I remember the drive would be like an hour every time. And it was like, it felt like awful, but it was a Christian counselor, which I'm not too happy about. But at the same time, she never brought up God during my counseling. So she allowed me to work through my quote unquote daddy issues and all of my family stuff. It's just that unfortunately I wasn't able to work through a lot of the religious trauma because she was still very much, you know, she was a Christian counselor, 
but it did allow me a safe space to talk about a lot of the stuff that happened and to work through a lot of the family trauma and things like that. But that's it. No, no other counseling or no other therapy other than that. And I think I was about 16 or 17 at the time whenever she was driving me there around there. I think. Well, I got married when I was 19. So you would have been 17, 18. 17. So I was 17 then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I never had, I never had had any counseling ever. I read and did a lot of books and listened to a lot of podcasts and do a lot of stuff like that, but I've never had a um, safe space like ever, except when I had my own home and then, you know, that turned into something else later. But I mean, basically I never had it. I've never had it. It was, it was just pretty, it was pretty scary a lot of the time. I just remember being scared a lot all the time for sure. Yeah. Like high levels of stress. People who were supposed to protect you. Yeah. From parent to then church and then to God. Even law enforcement yeah. and then God. Yeah. Like, right. Nobody. Nobody was protecting you. Right. Yeah. We even went to our grandparents, you know, eventually and said some things like, you know, after it was kind of already out there. And my it was my dad's mother and his stepfather, which our grandparents and um they even kind of shut it down. Like nobody really wanted and it's an uncomfortable situation for everyone, I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, but like we're also the kids reaching out for someone to offer some, some assistance or throw some lifeline here. And like everybody was either too uncomfortable or too blinded by their own faith to do the right thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, I remember many a times that this um, the youth pastor would pull us, me aside and be like, Debbie, you're just having a lot of anger issues. You just need to like cast it to Jesus, throw your cares on Jesus. And you're just going to have to let it go. Just like I'm letting this water bottle go. And I remember thinking that's so easy for you to say. That's so easy for you to say when you didn't grow up that way. And then not only that, I look at them, the church organization as responsible as to why my mother went back. Like, did she use best judgment? No, she did not. But that's neither here nor there. But she probably would have made a different decision, I believe, if the church wasn't so much. It's your responsibility to hold the family together. The woman is the the glue and that holds the family together. And we're the fiber of the family. And all of that bullshit that they were fed to her, especially by the pastor's wife, mm-hmm. like especially from the pastor's wife. Right. Yeah. And. So that I feel like that's why she's like she didn't want she doesn't want to go to hell either she doesn't want to go to hell and then burn in like a fire and all that kind of stuff so she was probably just trying to do whatever her warped religion brain was telling her to do at the time and she hasn't done her dealt with her own trauma that she had it and she was you know what I mean so it was like right. a whole big thing like so it, it just yeah. so many things fell through the cracks because nobody was in a good mental state or had any kind of self awareness or any kind of like outside perspective or outside opinion or any or standards of any kind really other than let's just do what the bible says the bible says blah 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 you know and but the funny thing is that but there are no verses on our particular situation like you could dig in the bible all you want like show me the verse where the father is like sexually molesting his daughter and what do we do there's nothing in there. Okay. Like yeah. there isn't anything. So like, I don't even think that they knew what to do because all they know is, well, let's look it up and it's not in there. So oh, I guess we'll just pray mm-hmm. about it. And also yeah. having all of that happen to you as like a young kid and then being in that really strict religious environment where you're going every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every yeah. little youth trip, every, 
Like you're talking about knocking door to door, witnessing to freaking strangers on their own property, Mm -hmm. having doors slammed in your face, like leaving tracks when you go to a restaurant, you know, because like, oh, you're a bad Christian if you don't try to witness to the waitress, you know, there's all all this pressure to do all this stuff. But like, no one's like, what about the actual, what about this stuff? You know, there was no actual tools anywhere for any family or for any kid or any teenager going through anything like that. Mm-hmm. And to turn around and be like, oh, yeah, well, God loves you and he's here for you. Really? Like, where? Where is he at, actually? Because I do like, not where feel that. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that was a really hard thing to wrap your mind around this, too, because you're going through all this pain and all this stuff and, and in your home. And then you're going to church and getting met with all this weird control. And then they're like, oh, but Jesus is there for you and pray and this and that. And you'll go to heaven and everyone you know and love will be there. I hope not. Like, I don't want to see any of them. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's funny. Um, And you also mentioned, I remember listening to your episode, you're talking about those like stages of healing from mm-hmm. religious trauma. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that angry stage, like that oh, angry yeah. avoidant stage, you know, mm-hmm. which hit me whenever I had my daughter in my early 20s. Like, because then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm faced with, well, what do I want to do with her? Am I going to teach her this? What am I going to teach? Because I was freshly coming out and trying to find my own beliefs mm-hmm. and stuff from that. Right. And and it made me really look at everything really like through a different lens. And I got real angry. Like I thought everyone from my past that was affiliated with church was an enemy, even my family. Like if you're going to talk to me about religion, Christianity, anything, church, Bible, whatever, I don't want to hear it. So I don't want to talk to you. And, you know, I just avoided everything. I was super angry. Like I, if you, if someone brought up the Bible or church around me, you get ready for an hour long rant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I spent probably five years like that straight, like just angry working through the bullshit of that. And yeah. then, you know, now I have a place where I'm like more accepting of like everything that happened and I'm at peace with it because of where it has brought me now. But that whole experience was just really difficult to go through and trying to find yourself and your own spiritual walk outside of that was just quite like a journey. That was a a really interesting experience, but I don't know how long I would have stayed. My, my daughter definitely jumpstarted that for me because I'm like, what am I going to teach her? (laughs) You know? So yeah. It helped push me through that process, that those healing stages, I feel like a little bit too. That, that resonated mm-hmm. a lot with me whenever you talked about that. I hear that a lot from people who've had kids who've left the faith. Really? Having a kid, either it either catalyzed them to actually make the change of leaving mm-hmm. or it they really started reevaluating and going through the healing journey when they had children right. because they all of a sudden things become so clear. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden this love you have for this other person, you can't imagine putting them through anything like that. Mm. And it you gotta start working through stuff real quick. Yeah, it's got to get <laughs> real know? uncomfortable up in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, real uncomfortable. But for a better outcome. Yeah. Which is good. I just am so amazed by you both in coming out of that situation and choosing differently. And, and not even in an angry way, like I'm not doing this because I'm, d- but just in, in actively choosing it because you know, it's what's best for the future, right? For your own children, for your mm-hmm. own mental health, for your own. I just, I love hearing that from you. It's guys. just it's not really logical. Beautiful. To me. 
like when you think about it, like the yeah. purity culture and all that stuff, it's not logical, right? And right. It, to me, like it doesn't, there's like no found, it doesn't matter. Like it's just not logical to me at all. Like I don't, it doesn't, I, I tried to hang on to it for a long time because I, it took me a long time to start my healing thing just because yeah. I, I don't like, I have a problem with emotions. So it's really hard for me to express emotions in a constructive way or deal with my own emotions. Like, I don't know, like I did alcohol for a long time because mm -hmm. I couldn't process like, oh, I'm sad. I'll just go have a drink. No problem. Now I'm not sad anymore. Fixed, you know, and, or other things, right? Like, I mean, just different, like food or exercise. Like I would always find something that I would self-soothe with. And so it was really hard for me to get over, to let that go and let that part die because it has been ingrained in you your whole life. Oh, now you're going to go to hell because the greatest sin is what? Turning your back on God. How much did they preach that? Renouncing God, yeah. renouncing your faith is the greatest sin is what they say, right? Like yeah. it's fine to rape a five-year-old. That's okay. But don't renounce Jesus. Don't renounce Jesus. <laughs> but that, um, it took me a long time because I'm not, I am like emotionally handicapped. I feel like in some ways with that and it has definitely impacted me. And so it took me a longer to get there. But then once I got there, it was like, okay, let's do this thing now. And they've just mm -hmm. been like on a steamboat ever since. Like we just have to keep going. Like it doesn't matter. Like just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. And I had had to cut off friends. I've had to cut off family. I've had to cut off a lot of people about it because I can't have you surrounding me when I don't feel safe with you. That's my biggest thing now is like my safety and my kid's safety. So if I don't feel safe with you, I want nothing to do with you at all. Emotionally, yeah. physically, spiritually, any of it. Any, if you are you safe? You're not? Okay, go. Like, I don't want. <laughs> so it's just, it's really weird. Yeah, yeah so, I feel like now me and Debbie claim our space now, like a lot, just yeah. from not being able to do that as children. Like, mm -hmm. now yeah. it's like, no, this is like with our homes, especially, like, no, this mm -hmm. is my area, this is my space. Or if we're somewhere, it's like, we're going to remove ourselves from the situation. Mm -hmm. Our boundaries are very sacred to us now. <laughs> yes. Yes. I feel that way about my privacy and my home. Mm -hmm. They're both yeah. very. I hold on to them very tightly. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's different yeah. when you can go home and have a calm space and you just be like, Ugh, after the day, like oh there's not yelling and screaming and name calling and fussing and fighting. It's expectations. <laughs> right. It's, right. Yeah. Okay. It is mm -hmm. all right. I don't, my, you know, day does not revolve around serving my partner 24 seven. Mm -hmm. I do it do things I do for him because I just want to, and I know it helps him and I do things that I want to do, but I mean, it doesn't, my whole life doesn't revolve around just that. Right. Or right. yelling at the girls because they're not doing enough servitude. Right. Or they're right. not doing enough stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it's still ingrained so deep though. Like, cause when you, it brings it out when you're with kids or other people's kids, or especially when you're blending families and all that stuff. And you're like, wow. Like my views are crazy. Like I need to let yeah. that work. Oh, there's another thing I need to work on. I forgot I even knew that or thought that way. But why do I think this way? Oh, cause the Bible. Well, let's get rid of that. You know? Yeah. Let's, let's examine point. that one. Yeah. 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 Evolution <laughs> process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta evolve. Growing up in Yates too, with like just being women, um, like th that belief where, you know, there were whole services that were preached on how to be a good wife. And I don't remember mm. a single one teaching the men how to be good husbands, but they dedicate yes. a whole sermon to us. Like, you know, and you also went to the, we did the, the etiquette classes with the Mennonite yes. woman yes. where she had us hand sewing quilts when we were 10 freaking years mm -hmm. old. And 
memorizing Proverbs 31, 31st on how to be a virtuous mm-hmm. woman. And I'm sitting here taking all these little things in on how to be a good wife one day and a good yeah. mother. I'm like, I'm eight. I don't, I want right. to go play That's outside. Focus. Yeah. And right. it's like, you really young. teach them while they're young. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally and, bred to be a wife. But it's still ingrained in me a little bit because a lot of those really like old school, like gender role things Mm -hmm. that the church really, really tried hard to stick in us at a very young age. Like I'll still catch myself doing stuff yeah, because I just fall into it and I'm like, oh, and then when I realize that I try to like not, I'm just, I'm going to sit down. I don't care if there's laundry everywhere versus like that would never be okay. Like if there's something to be done, you better do it. Otherwise you're not doing your part as a wife, Mm -hmm. a mother. You know, there's all these expectations of what to be as a woman growing up in that church. And it was just exhausting. And I try to just not live my life by that anymore. Yeah. It's hard. It was exhausting. It's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Very exhausting. Yeah. And I'm just, I just love that we're not doing that anymore. Fuck yeah. Right? <laughs> I just, right? I just love that we're like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like I was thinking about it today and I remember growing up and being told from, you know, church and other sources and stuff that like, you know, you're going to, your husband's going to want you to be like this and want you to take care of these things. And your job is the household and all this stuff. And I remember, I remember telling my parents, I was like, no, I am going to marry somebody <laughs> who can do the dishes, who can do the stuff. This is not just, a, I was, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what a little feminist I was. <laughs> some of I this. love it. And sure enough, I now live in a house with my partner who is not just not just will do those things, but doesn't even need to be asked to do those things. Mm-hmm. It's a huge change, and every now and then, like when I when I when we first moved in together, I was like, um, "How am I supposed to prove myself worth to you if I'm not serving you?" You know what exactly. I mean? That that came up of like, well, if I'm not the only one who's taking care of everything, then what good am I? Mm-hmm. And that set me on like a tailspin (laughs) having to work through some issues but it's a beautiful thing to look at you know our lives now and see how different they are than what they were primed to be I remember I had a migraine really bad and I had my babies and Eric and I were just starting to date and um he was he's very like attentive and gives me all like space and time or whatever he's very sweet but he, I was like, I just have a migraine, but I can't. He's like, just go take a nap. I'm like, I can't. I have my babies. He's like, look, lay down, go to sleep, take your mess. And I got the boys. I'm like, but he's only two and he's terrible and he has diapers. And he's like, I've been a dad for 11 yeah. years. I got like, this. I'm an adult. <laughs> and he took the boys, put the boys in his car, took them to McDonald's, took them to a park, took them all. Didn't bring them back for two and a half hours. Well, they had and a great day. They had a fantastic day without me growing <laughs> up because I had a migraine. But like none of the church guys do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. If you have a migraine, you better still be cooking and cleaning everybody and cleaning them up after everybody. And just like, you know, you said like the, your value is how good of a servant are you? Right. How, how much manual labor are you bringing to the household? Because that determines your worth. It does. Your purity and then your work ethic inside the home. Yeah. Like how much are you a slave to everybody? Are you a slave and are you a virgin? Are you the best then? You know, that, yep. I feel mm-hmm. like that's their, stand- that's their <laughs> I know, standard. That's so disgusting. That's so true though. Mm-hmm. And constantly yeah. having to prove your self-worth all the time. That followed us yeah. from being children, which it's so hard to mm-hmm. constantly live up to something that you don't even understand as a child. 
Yeah. You know, and then like it just follows you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and that just follows you through growing up into adulthood too. And then you're like, oh my God, why am I constantly trying to prove myself to everyone that I'm in an intimate relationship with Mm -hmm. in all these crazy ways? And then I'm expecting the same from my partner. You know, right. like I'll kill myself, but I don't expect you to do the same. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly mm-hmm. what they taught me. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they grained in me. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult to just wipe that, you know, it's just like little baby steps, you know, like <laughs> baby, baby steps. Step. I just go and sit One down and say, fuck it. When I realize I'm doing it, <laughs> fuck it. That laundry can wait. Those dishes can wait. I'm going to take my moment right now. <laughs> I'm not doing yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys, this has been a <laughs> wonderful conversation you know (laughs) definitely some heart-wrenching moments but I just every time we speak I feel better I feel stronger I feel more capable you guys are just you're such wonderful people and I'm glad we got to reconnect in this way it's it's really special to me special to me too it's It's, it's awesome to see you as an adult like yeah, and yeah. Your thoughts and opinions and then be yours and not recited things from the church. Like yeah, they're it's just your own, cool. you're just your own individual person. And that's one thing they don't like individuals like at all. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So I love that. We're all so unique and in individuals in different ways. I love it so much. It's just like a yeah. cherished thing for sure. Yeah. I love it too. It's beautiful to see. And I feel like that leads in really well. So there, you guys know there are two questions I ask every guest when they come on the show as we're you know wrapping up. And I'm really excited to hear your answers. The first one is, what do you see clearly now that you didn't see before when you were the most immersed in the faith? I always say what love is, that love is not conditional and um, you can have thoughts and opinions and whatever you want. And, you know, you're still worthy of love, right? So everyone is worthy of love. And that was my biggest takeaway, like having to relearn what love really is, because I, what I thought it was, is completely different than what I feel like it is now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's beautiful. How about you, Sam? I feel like I just see as silly as that sounds like, I feel like I had blinders on so much whenever I was Mm -hmm. growing up in church and stuff like that. And I don't feel like I saw anything clearly. Everything was conditional. Everything had a bunch of butts attached to it. And like, you know, now I just, it's important to me to see things for what they are and where they are. Even with people that I might not understand, like I really try to get to a place where I can just accept things where they are, people where they are, love people where Mm -hmm. they're at. Because Christianity does not teach you that, especially the things that we grew up being taught that was not something that was instilled in us. And I just want to see things for the truth that they are and everything, just not having those blinders that made everything black and white, you know, good or evil, Mm. you know, and just being able to be like, well, there's this other stuff there, you know? Um, Yeah. And just being able to like see things for the way they are. It's like, I finally have glasses on. I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And I just couldn't see anything before. Everything was through the lens of someone else or through the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recently heard a woman who left a cult say that the best way to ensure that you never get wrapped up in a cult or extremist situation is to get really comfortable living in the gray area. <laughs> and I think that that's so true. Yes. Mm-hmm. If there's anyone out there that's promising you, it's just this way. It's this black and white. It's this clear cut, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. You should probably leave. Right. <laughs> right. Not, 
that's not yeah. true. <laughs> that's very good. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and so our last question, and I'm sad to ask it because I just, I hate for our conversation to end, but this is my favorite part. What have been some of your greatest moments of joy in rebuilding your life post-faithfulness? You can go first, Sammy. Um, finding myself and discovering who I am. Yes, ma'am. Because, you know, um, I don't know about y'all, but I had zero identity whenever I was younger until I got out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All same. I knew was what people told me to know or be or think. And if I thought or acted or felt anything different, you definitely didn't share that. You know, you keep that inside because no one wants to hear that. And just figuring out who I am outside of all that is so freeing and embracing my spirituality in this really just open way where I give like life and just souls to literally everything on the, in the world, just this mutual love and respect for everything, not just Christians. Right. I'm sure you were told also when you were younger that like, Oh, well, if they don't go to church or they're not saved, you can't be around them because they're bad. You know, just, just thinking that everything was so dangerous and bad and just discovering who you are what's important to you, your values, your beliefs. And I stand so strong on those things now. No one is swaying me. Yeah. You know, to a fall. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Debbie? My most thing I'm really joyful about is just staying connected to Sam, right? Like we didn't Mm -hmm. drift apart. We're still just as close as ever. And our kids play and they love each other. And it's like a really great bond. So she truly is like my soulmate. Like I don't think I could have made it through my childhood without her in a lot of ways. Like I really, really, she's my best friend for sure. Like hands down. Um, Even though I know you want to strangle me sometimes, it's okay. (laughs) That's that's what sister love is. I'm sorry. And then I, I like the quote that you can't blame everybody for, or you can't blame somebody or in this case, an institution for everything bad without blaming them for everything that's good. And I think I am a great mother and I think I'm a great woman. And I think that having examples through friends, church, family, whatever, that just were not those things allowed me to really quickly shape how I want my family dynamic to be and how I want to be as a person and a woman. And I think that it is, that was a good blessing for me to be like real early. I didn't have to figure out much. Like I pretty much knew, okay, I don't want this. I do like this. I don't want that. Like it helped me make decisions really easy and it helped me help a lot of other girls that have been abused too and help them find their voice and speak out. And I love that I can help them, you know, like I've helped a lot and talk, just talk to them be like, look, girl, if you don't do anything else, like it's okay for one, like it's not okay, but you're going to be okay. And like go to therapy, like get in therapy, you know? And that's been really awesome to see because everyone thinks that when you have that, no one knows what it's like. I'm so ashamed. There's so much shame. Mm -hmm. So releasing that shame has been awesome. And just finding like, it's not your identity. It's just something, it's a situation that happened that you took that and took that out of a lesson. And here's what, here's what we do. And here's what we learn. And here's how to bring some positivity to it. Right. Like here's how to restructure the bullshit and make it better. And that's all that's all it's about. Like leveling up, right. You get out of the bullshit and you're like, okay, I'm going to get a little bit level higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher and just be like a better, more real rounded loving person at the end of the day. 
I think it's so beautiful how like just all three of us, even just just because knowing your story is so similar to ours, just growing up in that same faith that you can go from being so lost and so unsure about everything to where I feel like we're all pretty fucking grounded now in who we are and what we mm-hmm. want, what we're going to tolerate, <laughs> who we're going to tolerate and what ways we're going to allow things into her space. And I'm very thankful that if nothing else, that experience has led us to that. Cause I don't know that I would be as strong in myself and my beliefs and ideas if it wasn't for all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me mm-hmm. either. But it's interesting. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm really fucking grateful for that. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It matters. Thank you guys so much for sharing and for being here and for the work that you've done in yourselves and for your own families. It's awesome. It's just amazing to see. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us all together. Not just us, but like all your other guests too. Like it's so, it's an important topic. Yes. We look forward to the episodes coming out and listen to everybody's story. It's just Mm -hmm. beautiful relating to everything and then hearing everyone's journey through it all and through healing. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.